1: Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Karen Litzy, and in this episode, I have the distinct pleasure of sitting down and chatting with two physiotherapists, Mick Hughes and Randall Cooper, about the Melbourne ACL Rehabilitation Guide 2.0. If you're not familiar with Randall or Mick, Randall, who has been on the podcast before, is an experienced sports physiotherapist, founder and CEO of Premax adjunct lecturer at the La Trobe University Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre, and fellow of the Australian College of Physiotherapists. As a sports physiotherapist, Randall has worked with some of Australia's most notable sporting organizations, including the Hawthorne Football Club, the Australian Winter Olympic Team, and the Victorian Institute of Sport. He consults from the internationally renowned Olympic Park Sports Medicine Centre in Melbourne. Randall has also attained the title of Specialist Sports Physiotherapist, as awarded by the Australian College of Physiotherapists in 2008. Mick Hughes is an experienced physiotherapist and exercise physiologist who consults at the Melbourne Sports Medicine Center. He is currently completing a Master's of Sports Physiotherapy. Mick has expertise in ACL injury management and ACL injury prevention and has previously worked for elite sporting teams such as the Collingwood Magpies netball team, Newcastle Jets Under-20s Soccer Team, and NQ Cowboys Under-20s Rugby League Team. So this is a great chat on everything and all things ACL. So everyone, uh, have a pen and paper ready to take lots of notes and enjoy this episode. Hi, Randall and
0: Mick. Welcome to the podcast. I should say, Randall, welcome back. And Mick, it's your first time, so thank you for coming on. And Randall, thank you for coming back.
2: No, it was a great chat we had last time, Karen, so it's uh, great to be back on your show again.
3: Yeah, thanks for having thanks for having me, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Yeah, and so today we're going to be talking about the Melbourne ACL Rehab Guide 2.0. So can you guys give the audience a little background on how this came to be?
2: Uh, well, I'll, I'll start off because um, it, the 1.0 started about 15 years ago, and it started out of a necessity, really, at the time I was... Um, working with our Australian um, ski teams and also in AFL football over here. And I was also doing my master's degree in ACL rehabilitation. And we had a we had a horrible couple of years um, with our skiers where the main team that I looked after was our aerial skiing team, the ones that do the flips in the air and the gymnastics in the air. We had nine athletes. We had eight of them do their ACL in two years. So we actually had, at one point in time, we only had two athletes competing And back then, this was about 2003, 2004, there was no such thing as ACL or return to sport following ACL reconstruction. And because I had had my head and um, my attention in the literature, I thought, well, I've got to do something. I've got to get objective about kind of returning these girls back to sport. So I basically put together my own protocol. Um, I borrowed some hop tests that uh, the noise had written back in 91 uh, I combined it with a few other things and basically put together a protocol that added up to a hundred points and we thought, well, you know, if you need a, um, a good market um, university or college, you need to get above about 90 or 95. So we set that as the pass mark and um, it just started working and it worked on a couple of levels. Um, it was nice to integrate the, the research together um, and actually have it combined rather than just standalone tests. But the main thing also is it just gave a goal for everyone involved, the athlete, uh, the practitioners, the strength and conditioning people. And uh, the the protocol morphed over years and years. It was very low key for the first four or five years. I basically just used it myself and um, tests came and went, depending on what the literature said. But after a while, a lot of the, uh, particularly here in Australia, a lot of the people who are working in elite sport started to hear about it and they said, Oh, can I have your protocol? It's like, sure. I'll just shoot it off to them. And after a while it got a name and it was in 2013 that I decided I I just got to publish it. So I I made an ebook and um, published it and we've had thousands of downloads and it just sat there for a while. And after that, um, after about four or five years, Mick and I have um, um, been colleagues for a long time. And we just kind of got together and said, it's probably time for an update. I asked Mick if you'd like to join in and be part of 2.0 because he's, mm-hmm. he's really kind of right mm-hmm. up to speed on all the, uh, the research. Um, he's got such a great profile now that I just thought it was the blend of great, two great things. So, you know, Mick became involved and yeah. it's been great to have you Yeah, there. it's
3: been great. It's been great to be involved. And I guess my, my backstory to, you know, coming together with Randall was that I, I'd, I'd, uh, Moved to, uh, moved to Melbourne and knew, knew of Randall for a while. And I moved to Melbourne, I took up a position working with a professional female uh, sporting club. Um, now, that sport's probably a bit unfamiliar to you American listeners, but it's a sport called netball. Um, so think basketball without bouncing the ball. Um, same goal is to shoot the ball in the hoop. Um, so it's all professional, very athletic females. Now, ACL and knee injuries are um, and ankle injuries are very, very common. They take up about 40% of the whole injury profile in, in, in netball. Now we've got it. We had a very, sh- very small playing list. We only had a, a list of ten contracted players, and all of those ten players were either on the court, so seven on the court, three on the bench. So if one of those players goes down with a season knee, season-ending knee injury, you're then tapping into some reserve players who, um, just yeah, were maybe not quite up to that professional standard, but still very, very good quality players. So I had a very more margin of error so my goal was to basically prevent as many knee injuries as possible so i basically thrust myself into the acl literature assuming that ACL injury is the sort of the king and or queen of all injuries. And if you can prevent one of them, you'll also prevent a few of the other ones that you might come along the way, ankle sprains for particular so in particular. So um, yeah, so I I basically got up to speed very quickly about ACLs and that's how Randall and I got together to to form 2.0 and it's been a, a great little romance ever since. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and can can you guys give uh maybe we'll start out with like a quick overview of what it is of what the guide is and what it entails and then we'll kind of dig in a little bit deeper so do you want to just maybe go through the sections quickly and then we'll we'll dig in
2: yeah sure so <clears throat> the the protocol is i'll tell you what it's not to start with that the acl guide is not a list of exercises um there's plenty of pro- protocols that they're out there they'll say these are the magic exercises for your initial post-op period and these are your magical kind of exercises in return to sport. We firmly believe um, that every ACL rehabilitation protocol needs to be individualized, and that um, clinicians need to take a clinical reasoning approach to that, um, um, To that, so it's athlete specific, it's sport specific, but if someone's having trouble regaining strength in their hamstrings, for instance, then you do more work on the hamstrings. If they've, if they've got trouble with swelling, then you really need to kind of, um, uh, you use a lot of your you know, re- swelling reduction, anti-inflammatory type of strategies as well. So what the protocol is, is that it's really just um, a set of criteria uh, to move through and to help guide both clinicians and also athletes and patients to move through that ACL rehabilitation protocol uh, process um, with a bunch of very clear, easy to do uh, criteria driven outcome measures And the protocol is split up into six phases. So we'll drill down a little bit more into each phase if you like, Karen, but the first phase is a a pre-op phase. So that's really uh, um, ensuring that the athlete or the patient is ready for surgery. Then there's four phases of rehab, um, post-op. So there's the post-operative phase. Phase two is the strength and neuromuscular phase. Phase three is a return to running, impact and change of direction phase four is the return to sport and do you know what the phase five would be injury Uh, prevention
0: oh injury prevention i was like wait a second i'm looking at it i don't see i don't see where five right i see phase four return to sport
2: yeah and it's uh, the reason i asked you that is because it is easily forgotten Mm -hmm. and uh, clearly in a little bit more detail later on but it's almost the most important phase is is to is to implement an injury or re-injury prevention pro uh, program as part of the whole process. Um, but that's that's the protocol in a nutshell.
0: So the, when you're talking about prehab in this context, you're speaking of someone who has already had an ACL injury and yep. they're sort of prehabbing before surgery. How important is that?
3: Huge, huge. Um, so. There's been some really nice papers done, uh, published just recently, and, and it's probably even stemming back a good five or 10 years, but it's it's very, very clear in the literature that if you are a really strong and you've got your strength up to an adequate level uh, prior to your ACL reconstruction, um, it puts you in a much better place, not just in the first 12 months post-op, but many, many years down the track in a couple of different criteria. So So, look, there's... One of the you know, key, key papers from ages like five, five years ago um, clearly showed that if you've got higher COOS levels, so the um, subjective questionnaire, the, the COOS, if you've got higher COOS scores leading into the operation, you're going to have better um, quality of life and better function in the knee um, up to six years down the track. Okay, So it's really important to get that strength and function up before the operation. Now, another really uh, good paper published just recently was showing that if you could do, and this, this compared the, you might be familiar with the, the Delaware-Oslo cohort and the mm-hmm. Moon cohort. So, so basically um, the paper by um, uh, Fela, um from back in 2016, basically compared the, the Del- Delaware-Oslo group to the, to the Moon group. Now the Delaware-Oslo group did 10 extra sessions of neuromuscular training prior to the operation. The Moon group didn't. So they basically, the Moon group got their knee settled and went into the operation. Mm -hmm. The Delaware did 10 extra sessions over five weeks of um, neuromuscular training, strength training and perturbation training. Now, what happened there, they looked at outcomes over two years. And what they found was that um, those that did those 10 extra sessions, once again, had better knee function uh, two years down the track. But they also had had higher levels of uh, return to pre-injury sport as well. Um, at the two-year mark. So pretty pretty significant outcome measures there if you get nice and strong before the operation. Now, lastly, well, why we've added in the pre-op phase is that you can actually get some really good um, baseline numbers prior to the operation, which a lot of patients don't get. Often patients have their injury, roll up to surgery um, and, and, and do the rehab. Whereas, once again, a nice paper um, from last year looked at when you measured um, strength and hop tests, Uh, prior to the operation on the uninjured side and use that as your return to sport baseline, six months, 12 months, post-op, whatever you want to do, that should be used as the outcome measure to return to sport, not your six-month post-op score where you've got deconditioned, you've lost strength, you haven't been running, you haven't been jumping. If you're using that outcome measure for your return to sport testing, which is known as the limb symmetry index, if you're using that, you can certainly overestimate someone's person, someone's ability to return back to sport. So that's why we've included that too to capture some really nice information. So it's really three, three, uh, three-pronged attack as to why we should be doing some really good pre-op.
0: And if you're the clinician working with someone who just had an ACL tear, and they are, if they're a collegiate athlete or even your recreation athlete, professional athlete, and you tell them, you know. I think we should wait and do some prehab before you go in for surgery. Yep. How does one get that across to the patient? That listen, this is really necessary because you may have better outcomes, especially if that person, let's say, they are a professional athlete and they just want to get in, they want to have the surgery because they want to, they they need to get back to sport.
2: I think um, I suppose sometimes this is um, both Mick and I are clinicians, so it's it's. It, Sometimes I think that if you just give them the statistics and the studies, um, that can kind of whitewash over them, and it's kind of like oh, it's so boring. I just want to get going with it. What what I tend to use is I'll, I will tell them, and I'll, I'll reflect on the studies that um, that Mick has kind of mentioned already. But then I think that the most powerful thing is is then giving examples of where it's worked um, with patients in the past and where it hasn't. And um, going back to um, my experience all the way back about uh, 15 or 16 years ago, we had an athlete who um, <clears throat> injured her knee in the Winter Olympics and it was really quite bad and had a lot of media attention around it as well. And she went straight into surgery. She literally injured herself. She was on the plane back to Australia within um, 12 hours. And within 12 hours of landing back in Melbourne, uh, she was in surgery and she combined injury. She had an ACL, MCL. She basically blew her knee in half and it took six months to regain her range of motion it was horrible like it was just so bad and i I think if we'd had those studies that had shown that you know that that we should have waited two or three you know even two or three months and she regained her range of motion and uh, got back she would have actually been ahead at that six month point compared to others so um if i if you can combine a um, a good story so the uh, that resonates kind of like with your athlete or your patient, combine that with the um uh, the, the statistics and the 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 research that's out there, um you can usually paint a pretty powerful message
0: yeah, that makes sense and and I think maybe putting it into the context of well, if we can get some range of motion, get your swelling down. And some neuromuscular control ahead of t- ahead of surgery, you'll be that much further ahead out of surgery.
2: No, that's right. And the other thing to consider also, and this I don't want to open a can of worms here with <laughs> um, conservative versus um, surgical, but no, there's a lot more people these days who are debating whether, um, and their patients as well, whether they actually need the surgery. Yeah. So in this situation, like um, if you give them that really good pre-op post pre-op period where they do their rehab you get quite a number of them who will really start to question whether they need that ACL reconstruction done kind of during that pre-op phase anyway.
0: And now, you know, you had mentioned as you were going through the sections of the uh, the guideline that you don't give very specific exercises to do within each phase of the guideline. Why is yeah. that?
3: Yeah, no, I think we do. And, and look, I, I don't know if that's a... a um, I, I don't know, I think my training and Randall's training and maybe some of the training here, and it might differ from country to country, but certainly our level of experience shows that we shouldn't be doing protocols. I think, you know, cookie-cutter programs and recipe-based programs is just not an ideal way to go. And we know that, you know, depending on the sport, depending on the age of the person, depending on a lot of different factors, you know, some exercises simply don't suit or are completely irrelevant. So really it should be... a a really strong clinically reasoned approach um, and, the, and the fact is after a certain period of time and and generally this time is any time after 3 months a lot of the a lot of the rehab is really um strength and conditioning based where you know they should be in a gym doing all sorts of different things and certainly gearing up to return to sport now every sport demand is also very different too so the exercises one selects to match the demands of the sport is going to be very different so it, we, like I said, we certainly don't run a dictatorship here of, of saying you must do this, you must do that. And I think that's, that's not a good way to go. And the other reason being is some people just don't don't love the gym. You could write the best gym True. program for someone and they won't do it. And then they'll have a poor outcome because compliance is low. So you need to be able to be very flexible to um, prescribe exercises that will match the person's um, enjoyment. Um, so that, that's why we haven't included any exercises whatsoever. Rather, we've included criteria that some that people must or should pass between phases of rehab.
0: Yeah. So you're telling us we kind of have to think a little bit more. Absolutely, you right? should think. <laughs>
3: and just be dictated by the orthopedic surgeon's protocol. Yeah. yeah use, use your head a little bit. Yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. Because the demands of, let's say, someone doing a, a triple hop for the Olympics are going to be much different than the demands of a 16-year-old volleyball player. Yes. Right. Yep, absolutely. Okay, so it allows you the flexibility to kind of tailor your programs to the person in front of you, which is yep. vitally important. Yeah,
3: and even, you know, the more sedentary person, someone who's a 40-year-old mm-hmm. recreational skier um, or even just a recreational runner who unfortunately tore their ACL playing a social sport, running around. They don't need to be doing plyometrics and all that kind of stuff. They, you know, it would be nice to do some skipping if they want to run again. But you know some of the you know high-level tasks that they need to perform might be nearly as 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 tough and demanding as someone who's going to return back to high-level basketball, for example, too. So um, certainly, that every every ACL reconstructed patient shouldn't be painted with the same brush.
0: Yes, absolutely. And now speaking of running, let's talk about that. Running is obviously a a big milestone in an ACL rehab. How do we know, as clinicians, when this athlete is ready to go back to running after their ACL surgery and is there an ideal time frame for that?
3: Yeah it's a really um, commonly asked question and and we really do have a a pretty huge gap in the literature as we speak. There was just a recent um, review of um, over 200 papers um, highlighting that big gap. Like we know that you know people there's a certainly lowered risk of re-injuring your ACL or the other side when you return back to sport. But when when do people when are they safe to run or when is it safe to run or when they should we we don't really know that very well um, at the moment. That sort of paper of over 200 papers uh, looked at you know, the the time point being the most common indicator and, and on average that time point is three months. And in our ACL rehab guide we we've used that sort of three month mark and that's purely based on the biological healing times of the ACL. Reconstructed ligament, so we certainly don't want to add any extra load to the knee while it's revascularization. So, um, look, we certainly don't have a hard and fast evidence based approach. There's, there's nothing to say that what we've added here in the protocol is going to lower your risk, but what we've provided is a nice framework of basic strength measures that you should be hitting before you move to those higher demand tasks such as running, jumping and agility based work. And if you if you can't tick those boxes, you're more likely to add more load to the knee, making it swell, making it sore. And I've seen that time and time again, someone comes into the clinic, it's been four months since my operation, I started running because my surgeon said so, or my physio said so, but my knee blew up. And I look at their strength and their strength's so poor, they can't do a single leg rise off a, off a bench, they can't do five single leg hamstring bridges, they certainly can't do 10 calf raises. And so their lower limb function on that affected side is so poor that they can't shock absorb when they run. So, so that's why we've set this criteria that you should be
2: able to hit um, some nice functional tasks before you contemplate running. And uh, just to jump in there, um, Karen, I think also to add to that, I mean, it's the phase two kind of assessment, basically, where we look for people to kind of pass those uh, tests. I won't go through them all now. People can download the guide. It's only a few dollars. So... Um, it's easy to see there. There's about a dozen tests to, to kind of run through, and they're mainly just strength based. But as Mick said, you know, like there is some concern over whether you're doing any damage to the graft. But it's also about optimizing your rehab because, as Mick said, it's it's whether the joint gets irritated, gets synovitic, uh, whether you get patellofemoral pain by going back kind yeah. of too early. Yeah. These are the things that will slow the rehab down. So, kind of timing the running, but also not it's not a black and white decision is to to say, all right, well, today you're not running and tomorrow you can go back to running 30 miles a week. Um, it has to kind of be a slow blend, but again, to use that criteria driven framework. So people have that, and it's a nice goal, kind of like a third of the way through rehab as well. To kind of say, all right, these are the things that you need to tick off before you can start progressing with your running program as well.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine making sure that strength and balance and proprioception is adequate is important because you want to make sure that if someone's running, the forces are distributed evenly through the lower limbs. Because if not, you're going to get stress on that graft and then you're going to get that angry, irritable knee.
3: Yep. Absolutely.
0: And so are you also looking at quality of running? So if you are having someone run, you're not just saying, okay, I did all these strengths tests." go have at it, go for a run. Are you watching them run in front of you for maybe the first couple of times to look at how they're, the quality of that run?
2: Uh, The short answer is yes. Um, But I mean, it's no different to any other kind of facet of rehab that the, the first time that you'll get someone to do a single leg squat as part of their rehab, they're a bit shaky and don't look so great. The first time that you ask them to hop, they're going to be very nervous about it and they won't look so good. And the same happens with running as well. So the way I do it clinically normally is that I will assess them in the clinic first. I I'll, I'll, I'll like to see that they've come, sometimes, i to be honest, I, sometimes they don't have to tick every single box, but they have to tick most of them. And I also have to look at that kind of gut feeling clinical kind of, you know, resonance, I suppose for a better word, is that, yeah, I feel like they're ready as well. And then in the clinic, I'll just spend five with the minutes kind of running up and down the corridor, really slow, let's see how you feel not only is kind of like the, the quality reasonable, but then you can talk to them about what they need to change um, and then outline a, a running program that's uh, specific for them as well. I don't think that you're going to get anyone um, after an ACL reconstruction who ticks all the boxes and then just can run fluently like Usain Bolt. I think that they, they, they'll take a little bit of time to get in it. But as a clinician, I think the main thing that you're looking for is that the knee is going to tolerate that load. Even if the biomechanics aren't quite perfect, but you're going to work towards getting them perfect over time.
0: And you know, you had sort of touched upon a little bit uh, the the first time they run, the first time they hop. Certainly, with single leg, there's going to be some trepidation and anxiety. How are you looking at anxiety in these athletes or in these patients? Because It's obviously after an ACL reconstruction, just like with most surgeries, it goes beyond just the physical. So how are you taking into account that person's um, mental state and mental readiness as well?
3: Yeah, yeah, no, good question. Yeah, we've got, so as part of the criteria, we've got three subjective questionnaires or patient reported outcome measures. So we've got the IKDC, we've got the ACL RSI, and we've got the Tampa kinesiophobia scale, um, all of which are really nice. Um, snapshots of the person's anxiety, um, confidence, any fears associated with their knee. Um, so, so that's certainly part of the criteria, and we'll we'll have a look at those as rehab um, chugs away. Um, and it just—it's a really nice thing. It's it's a very important thing to do, um, but it also opens up a conversation because once you've given the outcome measure to to the patient, you can sort of just scroll through the questionnaire and say, okay, oh, you. You indicate here you've got a bit of concern, a bit of worry. You know, let's let's talk about that. And if it's a fear about running, jumping, or landing, then it's you know, then you can sort of break down their movement patterns. Are are they still a bit weak in the quad, or are they just a bit tentative? And if it's just if they're just tentative, then it's trying to gradually expose them to those you know high demand tasks as well. So um, I think those outcome measures are really really important part of the the clinical pathway through ACL reconstruction,
2: um, because it does
3: allow you to sort of break down some of the movement
2: patterns to build up their confidence. I might just also add to what Mick said, um, those three kind of subjective questionnaires that we used I think are really important outcome measures, but the other thing that we use um, uh, in the second half of the protocol, or the guide I should say, um, are our hop tests. Now when you look at the hop tests, the, the cut and dry kind of measurements, just distance, but we don't look at quality. And we've had this discussion a few times before where you can get somebody whose um, limb symmetry index looks great when you're comparing left to right and it, sometimes even you may compare it to the baseline if you've got great um, baseline data too. But sometimes you'll look at them and you'll say, it's just not looking the same as the other side. Now that's hard to, to uh, qualify, quantify on, uh, as actually on, on paper. But again, that's where a clinical kind of experience comes to in, into it a little bit as well to say the hop doesn't, even though the hop, they're hopping the same as the other side, it still doesn't look great quality. So why is that? You know, and that that's where the clinical reasoning and the clinical art comes back into it. Is it strength? Is it proprioception? Some of these questions can get answered with the tests that are in the protocol, but then is it confidence? You know, even though they're saying and they're ticking all the boxes on the, the right boxes kind of on the Tampa scale, for instance, they still might be bluffing, you know, because they're really desperate to kind of go back. And, and that's, again, where um, I think the clinicians need to kind of just not just not kind of be too reliant on the tests and the protocol and the guide but also look at their patients closely as well to see whether they think that they're, they're happy within themselves to return that person to the next phase or back to sport eventually mm. as well.
3: Yeah. And, and it, once again, probably just building on that a little bit too, it's, we, it's, it's also observing what the other side's doing too, because we know the contralateral injuries are a huge huge problem and there's just been a high profile case here in our Australian Football League, the AFL, where a player's returned back to sport in his first year back after waiting 18 months and he's re-injured his other other side just a few weeks ago. Um, And, you know, I I actually uh, didn't clear a patient to return to sport recently based on what I was seeing on their other side. Um, A young teenage female who was going back to a high-risk sport was like, well, you operated sides bang on perfect it's strong it's confident you're landing well but hey look at your left side and I filmed her and I showed her and I broke down all her her patterns of movement I said I'm not worried about your ACL reconstructed side now it's your other side I'm worried about so we need to tidy that up and you know this is the kind of stuff we need to work through too so it's it's not only observing and and looking at the operated side it's also having a look at the other side too.
0: And are you using let's say those uh, subjective reports of the Tampa and the IKDS ACL are you using those when you as like your initial intake with that patient and then repeating throughout the rehab process and maybe even into sport? Or is it just like a one and done?
3: I, I certainly don't do it once. Um, I, 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 I don't know how much value you would get out of it within the first few months. Um, it, it might provide a nice little window of, of where the person's at. But certainly within that sort of three to nine month, three to twelve month window, I'll do it. I'll do it you know, once every two to three months, just to sort of see how their confidence is growing and building. Um, yeah, certainly not a, a one. It shouldn't be a one-off tick of the box that you do at the nine month mark, especially when that person's you know putting their hand up to return back to unrestricted training. And if you only, only do it at that sort of return to sport, and and all of a sudden you capture these questions that say. Uh, I'm, I'm fearful. I've got concern. If they if you're only finding that out at the 12 month mark, then you've got another you You're in point trouble. Three, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. You, you've got another three months to try and get rid of those kind of fears, and that person then is going to get cranky at you for uh, you know holding them back to return back to sport. So I think they should be done fairly free. You know, every two to three months throughout the rehab process. Yeah.
0: Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, I just wanted to clear that up for people listening who may think, well, I can. I, I did it once. But I think it's important to know that you, that's something that should be done throughout the rehab process. Let's talk about your return to sport assessment. It's obviously changed, I'm assuming now, than what it was years ago, Randall, when you first kind of put 1.0, version 1.0 out to version 2.0. So how has that changed?
2: Uh, there's, there's certain tests that have um, stayed the same. I mean, uh, actually, I'll take a half step back the thing that worked really well, as I mentioned earlier, was the hundred-point assessment. So, and we don't actually. The frustrating thing is, is that we don't have a clear kind of pass mark for it either. Again, a lot of it comes down to the um, to the uh, to the clinician and making sure that they're happy with the numbers and happy within themselves. But the 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 tests have morphed a little bit. Um, In version 1.0, we had had the star excursion balance test. We had uh, the single hop test. We had the triple crossover hop test. We had single leg squats to fatigue or the single leg rise test. And we also used the landing error scoring system, um, which in recent years has shown to be not really all that kind of great um, uh, for for a return to sport, kind of uh, prevention of re-injury type stuff anyway. So, uh, we've changed it a bit, uh, but there's more hop tests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we've added in, uh, another two hop tests. Yeah. So we've got the, the triple hop, the straight line,
3: triple hop, and we've also got the side hop as well, which, um, which I like, I, I, I think they're nice additions to the, to the program. Um, so the, the, the single, the triple, triple straight and the triple crossover certainly form a really strong evidence base, which have been used in two recent papers, looking at uh, knee re-injuries, ACL, and other types of knee re-injuries in the first couple of years. Um, But also, too, the side hop is a really – I like it in particular because it's an endurance-based test, and you can start to see quality issues creep in, especially with someone that's fatigued uh, on both sides of the body. So that's one of the new ones we've we've certainly added in, which we're, we're really excited about.
2: We've um, also, one of the, a couple of the other things that we've added in, probably the main one is also testing in a state of fatigue. So... And why um, is
0: that important?
2: Injury, uh, ACL injury in the first place, that fatigue plays a factor. That's been known for a while. The second thing is um, is that it's also been shown with recent studies that the limb symmetry index can change dramatically. When people are tested in a fatigue state. So they may have um, 90% limb symmetry index, which has kind of been the benchmark for a while um, when they're tested fresh. Um, but when they're in a fatigue state, you can see that that limb symmetry index between left and right uh, changes significantly. So Mick and I uh, thought that it was a, a very pertinent time to kind of pop in um, some hop testing and some other tests in a fatigue state. We've also combined that with um, some fitness measures as well because your fitness level um, is a huge part of um, injury in, in the first instance and also injury prevention in the second instance. So we've got a, a, basically the return to sport test has now been divided into two parts. The first is is um, the, the hop test battery, the star excursion balance test, the single leg rise test, a couple of other things in there as well. But then also to do another testing session in a fatigue state where the athletes do two fitness measures, um, and that's compared against a baseline. And then after that, once they've got to a VAS of 7 out of 10 fatigue, then they repeat some of these um, hop tests as well to see whether they're starting to get that disparity with their hop tests too. Um, because that's a concern for people going back, that they may look good on paper, but once they're really tired, they may have um, some strength endurance issues. And that's what we've tried to reflect in the testing and the protocol now.
3: Yeah. I saw a nice little uh, case study snapshot yesterday on Instagram. If you follow the prehab guys, they've got a, on their, um, their Instagram, my stories, they've, they have put our ACL rehab guide to test on one of their patients and they uh, tested that patient in a fatigued state and his uh, scores were significantly lower. Um, in that fatigue state, so that was a nice little, um, nice little case study there, which people can see. Um, but yeah, it's it's an important part. We should be preparing. I think this is the big thing. Like um, when a person wants to go back to sport, we 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 need to make sure they're best prepared to go back to to sport and be able to resist fatigue. And certainly setting that patient up and and preparing them for the worst case scenario when they return back to sport is very important. We we don't want to sort of yeah, overestimate their ability to go back to sport based on outcome measures that are tested in a fresh state because that's not necessarily when you're going to injure your ACL. You might injure that. that there's been some uh, links to injuring your ACL in the first you know, the first quarter of a game or the first few minutes of a match due to ineffective warm-up. But a lot of the injuries that we, we tend to see is sort of more that fatigue-based injury where the person just can't withstand uh, those forces any longer. Um, so yeah, very important to do that, uh, return to sport testing in a fatigue state.
0: And when we're talking return to sport, can you define what return to sport is? So when you're talking return to sport and you're at the point where you're doing this testing, they're already doing components of their sport. Am I correct in saying that? So they are already, if let's say it's a, a soccer player, a football player, they may be already out on the field doing some components of the sport before before you do this sort of return to sport assessment, let's say they're a more higher level athlete, right? So when you're doing these return to sport tests, are they perform? Are they return to participation? Is it sport? Is it performance? Does it? How do you delineate that? And and do you?
3: Yeah, it's it's a pretty complex complex question. Yeah, I feel like co- that could be a,
0: a a podcast in and of itself. But
3: oh, 100%. look, I, I think you, you you you're right in that you know. The return to sport testing, certainly the patient should be doing some field, if they're a soccer player, for example, before they do that return to sport testing, there's no doubt they're going to be doing some aspects of their skill-based training. And look, if they're running, jumping and doing agility prior to prior to all that, of course, they, they can and should be doing some degrees of training, whether or not they're unrestricted training. I think that's a, a big one. So in that um, Caritza study back in 2016, it looked at ACL re-injury rates their return to sport discharge criteria was based on once they hit that 90% limb symmetry on the strength and hop test, they were cleared to return to unrestricted training. So that that's kind of, I guess where people should be taking these measures and applying it. So um, certainly before that, if they're, if they're just building up strength and they're working up to that uh, return to sport goal, it should be considered return to sport, return to unrestricted training Um, Because then performance and and eventual sport or sport, return to sport and then return to previous performance are two very, very different things. And and in in my experience, and Randall probably has got other experiences too, um, I feel like a person needs at least one month, if not more, of unrestricted training to even get them close to the same level of speed and performance and agility and touch and all these kind of finer points of skill-based sport before they even get considered to return back to play and be named in the starting, you know, 10 or 15 or whatever sport you're playing. And and that, that's that been my approach in, in the past with ACL reconstructive patients is that they must have at least a month of training and must play at least a couple of rounds of low, lower level play before they uh, go back to their pre-injury levels, levels of sport. So that, that still is a good six-week process that once you get the green light to go back to sport, it's not eventually, it's not an automatic go
2: back to, to sport. It's, it's a process. I think I, I just might add to that um, in the the term return to sports almost a bit silly, isn't it? Because, yeah. It's you know, like,
0: not so clearly defined.
2: Oh, that's right. Because you could say, you know, running, uh, you know, three miles or five kilometers every week is returning to some kind of sports, right? So um, I, I think that the best term, and we haven't used it in the protocol because I don't want to be that controversial, but um, I think the best term is, is return to high risk, right? So. You know, like in um, you know, when it comes to kind of like let's use soccer, you know, European football as kind of like the example. When those players get back to starting to do competitive drills, where they're really cutting hard, uh, they're doing unconscious change of direction, uh, they're getting tackled, uh, they're in gameplay kind of situations. For me, that's return to sport. So that that they need to have kind of qualified all the criteria because that's high risk. Whereas running cones, doing sprinting, uh, doing uh, kind of conscious kind of drills, you know, just joining in a little bit of light training here and there, that's part of the process. So I think it it depends um, on the sport. It depends on the clinician. But my take-home message for most people would be to run the return to sport test as a return to high-risk test.
0: Yeah, because I think it's it's important for the listeners to know that when you're doing these return to sport tests if you're it's not like they haven't been doing anything out on the field or out on the court and then all of a sudden you're going to do this and say okay have fun go ahead and and return to your sport like they are already training with restrictions that maybe you've placed on them whether that restriction be time or whether it's no cutting or whether it's whatever those restrictions may be for the sport but I think it's important to know that they're already working at that level. You are going to, like you said, clear them for full return to return to risk or perf- or performance. They might not even get to performance the first time you clear them. I can't imagine that they do.
3: Performance is a twelve month, eighteen month process. Yeah, so if, yeah. Like, some of the studies on NBA basketball players, NFL players. You yeah, know, some of them. NFL players sometimes even, don't even come close back to their previous levels of performance. NBA players, some studies looking at, you might get to the same level of performance two years after they return back to sport.
0: Right. So performance
3: is such a, an evolution in, in the process, but return back to high-risk sport, high-risk activities, certainly is the first tick of the box.
0: Yeah, um, and so I think that then takes me to my next question, which you set it up perfectly, is once you've returned to sport after an ACL reconstruction, are we done?
2: In some some ways, I think that um, on a personal level for that athlete, there needs to be some level of celebration because it's a long process. You know, like um, Nick and I were just talking before we went on this podcast about how quick people can get back. But it's going to be somewhere between if you're absolutely flying and have to push it six months. But sometimes you're not returning people back to sport for 18 to 24 months kind of post-op. So for them to kind of get back um, is a big milestone And, you know, it usually requires a lot of hard work on everyone's behalf. So I think that at that point in time, it's kind of a nice point in time to say, well done. But unfortunately, the job's not done because the the re-injury rates for for people who have had an ACL injury are high. The pooled statistics uh, is that you've got a 5% chance of redoing the same knee. You've actually got 11% chance of doing the other knee. So you're actually more likely to do your ACL than what you were before you had the ACL in the first place. Mm -hmm. So then kind of going on and doing an injury prevention program uh, is really important. There's not a lot of research around injury prevention uh, programs for Mm re-injury of the graft. There's plenty of um, um, research around there to show that if you do an injury prevention program to to prevent an ACL in a primary and initial first ACL injury, then that, that can be highly effective, 50% reduction in the injury rates. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a body of work there to still kind of do, but it's very important that for two things. I think the first is, is that they need to continue on with some level of ACL injury prevention program, whether that's an off-the-shelf thing like um, the 11 plus or yep. um, the yep. netball knee, there's five or six of them. We've got them listed in the guide as well or whether it's tailored a little bit with the team and the strength and conditioning coach. So I think that's really important. The other thing also is, um, is that there may be a role to have those athletes monitored as well. Um, no difference to the way, for, you know, like I know you've spoken to people about groin injuries and kind of, um, you know, doing squeeze tests and strength tests to make sure that uh, their adductor strength is staying up to scratch. I think in our area, which is ACLs, if people can maintain good hopping symmetry, yeah. good mechanics, yeah. um, strength, and also then comparing it. The thing is great, if you go through the protocol, you go through the guide, and you've got all those um, outcome measures mm. that are there sitting, waiting, and can be used, then you can c- kind of compare that six months down the track, 12 months down the track, 24 months down the track, if they're still in that same sport. Um, I think it, there's no evidence for me to back up what I'm saying here, but I think it makes a logical progression kind of like in the way things are heading.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I think like what Randall said is, Certainly, when when you get back to sport, it should be celebrated. But um, and and certainly, there there needs to be some ownership um, on the the patient that they've now just naturally through their original injury, they've just now got an elevated risk. Um, So it sort of needs to have some ownership taken on board that once they go back to sport, it's just not all done and forgotten about. I think it's like like brushing your teeth. These patients should be sort of waking up every morning without being, you know, consciously thinking I've got to do my injury prevention program. It should be just accepted that they, for the rest of their playing career, they commit to two to three strengthening sessions per week. A good professional club will also have those nice dynamic warm-up activities performed each and every training session each and every game so already they're putting themselves in that nice position they've got a lot of risk but I think those regular monitoring and touching base with the physio staff um, medical staff within the club uh, I think that's an important thing so whether or not that's a you know once every six month screening process where you look at your strength and hop tests, make sure things aren't dropping but importantly looking at the quality of the movement over time and making sure that hasn't slipped because I think as soon as you start thinking that you're, you're good to go and things are, things are great, I think that's when you can start drifting back into those old patterns of movement that led to that first injury from, that happened in the first place. So it's more about that
0: quality control over time. And is the physio the person who is kind of making these decisions? So they're the ones doing this sort of the return to sport decisions, return to participation, performance, and, and also taking the lead on a lot of this follow-up care?
2: Oh, that's a that's a really tough question, and it's a, I don't know how it is in the states and in Europe so much, but it's a controversial question here as well because um, there's there's physios who will do it, uh, there's strength and conditioning people who feel that's that their role, uh, exercise physiologists. I, I don't know, I, I don't know who. No, I, I'll, I'll I'll say it differently. I don't think there is a best person or a best professional to kind of do these tests as long as they're done. So as long as I think that these things are monitored um, and then wherever the strength in that athletes um, setup um, is, i.e. they've got a great relationship with their physio or they're working very closely with their strength and conditioning kind of team, I think as long as those things are done and then if there's problems arise and the right people are brought in to kind of correct those errors, uh, that, that's the way I'll play. What about yeah. you, Mick? Yeah, no, I agree. I think... Well, certainly here
3: in Australia, I think physios are often seen as that person that does drive a lot of the ACL rehab. Um, certainly, the ups, yeah, but it's certainly a teamwork approach. I, I, I certainly work closely, even clinically now, even though I'm not with the with the team anymore. Um, I, I certainly refer on to appropriately trained exercise physiologists or strength and conditioning coaches. Um, just to get that quality rehab in, um, you know, my, my time is a bit restricted here in the clinic and our facilities are a bit restricted. We don't have the luxury of having a 20 meter running track or, you know, soccer goalposts to sort of kick and yeah. do- Yeah.
0: Listen, I'm in New York. I get that. Yeah. There so is not, the space is not there.
3: Yeah. So I think physios, you know, physio are often seen as that person, that go-to person for ACL rehab, whereas really it should be a team-based approach and 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 a, and a network of good strength conditioning coaches or exercise physiologists or exercise professionals is a really important uh, person to be consulting with throughout that whole rehab process. Now that, re- that final return to sport testing, yeah, I, it's one of those things. As long as it's done, um, I think that's the key key thing. Because so, some orthopedic surgeons might feel comfortable doing that. Um, they might take a bit more ownership on, on the whole patient themselves. But I know a lot of uh, surgeons here in Australia often don't have the time or space to do, to do that adequately mm-hmm. either. But as long as those tests are being done and they're being analyzed and critically and analyzed for, for quality of movement, I think that's, that's the key thing.
0: Yeah. All right. So now before we kind of wind things up here, is there anything that we missed or anything that, you know, we, you want to add on to this conversation?
2: Well, not for me. I think that, um, again, just kind of going back to uh, the, the essence of the, the Melbourne ACL rehabilitation guide. I mean, Again, we, 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 we don't think that um, a prescribed exercise program is the way to go. I don't. We really feel, and I think this has been reflected in our conversation over the last uh, 45 minutes or so, is, is that there's so many things to address and factor in in someone's and having an individualised kind of approach to rehab, and, and that's really what we want reflected kind of in ACL rehab generally. Mm-hmm. And the protocol is really just the bones to, to really help drive that process along. Um, but there's so much to it.
3: <laughs> yeah, I think that one of the key take-home messages for me is that you know time is a really poor indicator for future success. Um, this whole time-based system of when a person has their operation and then gets cleared to return to sport, based purely on time, is just almost a recipe for disaster. And you know, classically, we see this 12-month mark as that return to sport. Now, you could just cruise through your rehab and put in a really crappy rehab and get to 12 months and, and expect to go back to sport. Uh, I think the whole rehab process needs to be criteria driven all the way from when you start running through to return to high risk activities to eventually return to sport and then eventually into ongoing injury prevention. I think it really needs to, it certainly needs to be criteria driven rather than a time-based approach. That's, that's my key take home message I'd like
0: to,
2: yeah, agree. to share. Yeah.
0: Great. And then one last question and sorry, I forgot to give this to you before we started, but, it's a question that I ask everyone kind of at the end of the podcast, and that's given what you know now and where you are in your career and in your life, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad? So not advice you would give to someone else, but what would you tell your younger self?
2: You can go first, Mick. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Way to pass the buck.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a really good question. A
3: um, uh, 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 Yes, uh, if I went back to my new grad self, I'd say um, be patient and 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 certainly don't don't think you can fix everyone. Um, every person that walks in the door um, know that they run a run a different race, and not out not every patient will, see, will achieve these fantastic outcomes that um, are, you know everyone's back pain free and function free and 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 don't re injure themselves ever again. You know, expect that there might be some injury reoccurrences and some failures, and I experienced that last year. You know, we had. Of we had, we had an ACL reconstructed patient who returned back to Nepal in, in that season, and unfortunately she did her contralateral side at the end of the season, and that was to me that was a, a, a big eye opener. You know, she passed all the tests, she did everything right, and we were doing everything well, um, and I took that quite personally. That I'd sort of um, you know didn't didn't do, and even still twelve months later, I'm I think, starting. I think
1: to, you're
0: still a little upset.
3: <laughs> oh, it's just one of those. It's it's absolutely one of those things that I think you sort of need to be kind to yourself when things don't go mm-hmm. uh, to plan. And I think that's important as a new grad that you won't fix everyone and you can't fix everyone, but you can do your best. And as long as you sort of do your best, you, you can sleep well at night. Yeah.
2: My my tip, yeah, my tip to my younger self, um, I'll reflect on uh, when I was a young physio was that I was so keen to just learn all I could, and I went to every single course I could and every single lecture I could, which was great, but I probably um, did too many things too quickly, and my education was accelerated too far ahead of my clinical experience. Mm. So I'd go along to a lot of these courses, and I had no idea what they were talking about, because I just hadn't kind of experienced it in the clinic as well. So my, my tip is similar to Mick, and that is, is that take your time, Um, make sure that you're kind of getting your hands on people, you're getting that clinical experience. And then that dovetails in with kind of like your further education. So it makes sense to you at the time.
0: Great advice. Excellent from both of you. Thank you so much. And just so all the listeners know, we'll have a link where you can download the Melbourne ACL guide 2.0. That'll be in the show notes at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com under this episode. So no worries. You can download that immediately with one click. Um, so thank you, Randall. Thank you, Mick, for taking the time out 14 hours ahead of me in New York. You guys are in Melbourne. So thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure, Karen. Thanks for having Yeah,
0: us. anytime. And everyone, thanks so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.
1: Thank you for listening and
0: please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.